This is Ecotopia exploring ecosystems, environmental, social, and technological. I'm Stephen Schutte. Often on this program, we bring you some discouraging words about the environment, though usually with some concrete solutions for better environmental protection. I'm Susan Chudy. Though 2020 was a pretty terrible year on many fronts, there was, in fact, some positive news on the environmental front. And tonight, we'll bring you some good news from around the world. Ecotopia is made possible by the generous contributions of KZFR listeners and by Chico Certified Farmers Markets, featuring three markets in Butte County, year-round Wednesday morning in Chico at the North Valley Plaza, Saturday year-round at 3rd and Wall in downtown Chico, and a seasonal market Tuesday mornings in Paradise. The Chico Certified Farmers Market, connecting farmers and food lovers since 1980. The opinions expressed on Ecotopia do not necessarily express the views of KZFR, its staff, board of directors, volunteers, underwriters, or programmers. So tonight we're going to share some encouraging words about the environment. We don't want to minimize the crises. According to the World Wildlife Foundation, humanity has wiped out 60% of mammals, birds, fish, and reptiles since 1970, leading the world's foremost experts to warn that the annihilation of wildlife is now an emergency that threatens civilization. While that statistic is chilling and heartbreaking, there are some good news stories, and tonight we want to focus on those. So here's some of the good news about endangered species. For example, in Canada, the critically endangered wild marmot has gone from a low count of just 30 wild marmots living in a handful of locations in 2003 to approximately 200 living in colonies across 20 Vancouver Island mountains by 2019. You might ask, what is a marmot? It is a large ground squirrel. It's not something that you would ordinarily think that you want to keep as a pet or even care about, but... They're another indicator species, and the fact that they're being restored is encouraging. Through a captive breeding and release program in conjunction with the Toronto and Calgary zoos, habitat restoration and monitoring activities, the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation and its partners have seen the Vancouver Island Marmot repopulate areas where it was completely extirpated. Despite enduring a harsh climate, challenging conditions, and changing habitat due to the impacts of human activity, the marmots represent a good news story that illustrates the possibility of bringing a species back from the brink of extinction. The last two years have resulted in a combined population of more than 100 marmot pups born in the wild. That story came to us from Mother Jones by way of writer Rochelle Baker. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources continues to make strides supporting endangered species in 2020. This includes helping threatened turtles, aiding promising field trials for vaccine to save bats from white nose syndrome, and restoring a globally rare bedrock glade in the Baraboo Hills. Reports of endangered bumblebee sightings in 2020 reached record numbers, matching an upward trend of people turning to nature. Drew Fide 
Kirchner, DNR Heritage Conservation Program Director, said, In a year of unprecedented challenges, our dedicated natural heritage conservation staff, partners, volunteers, and donors doubled down on protecting and restoring Wisconsin's endangered species and state natural areas. The NC staff are responsible for protecting hundreds of rare species and state natural areas. They locate rare species, protect and restore habitats, assist landowners with rare species and avoid harm to them during development or other activities. And that came from the Wausau Pilot and Review in December 2020, December 22nd. The Associated Press reports that the bald eagle has been removed from the endangered species list in Indiana. It's a good time to be a bald eagle in Indiana and not a bad time to be a bald eagle in California where they are not as endangered. But after decades of population decline, the regal bird was recently removed from the state's list of endangered and special concerned species due to evidence of successful recovery. Habitat loss and industries such as hat making in the 19th century decimated eagle populations. And by 1897, there were none in Indiana. No eagles were known to have nested there for nearly a century until 1988. The State Department of Natural Resources reintroduced 73 eaglets in the 1980s as part of Indiana's first endangered species restoration project. And the first successful nesting occurred in 1991. Biologists now estimate there are about 300 nesting pairs spread across 84 of Indiana's 92 counties. Chick production rose 11% from 2019 to this year. DNR officials have said the recovery of the bald eagle is one of the greatest conservation success stories in Indiana. The project and ongoing research would not be possible without donations to the Indiana Non-Wildlife, Non-Game Wildlife Fund, the main funding source of all non-game and endangered species research and management. Nationally, Bald eagle populations have risen from 417 nesting pairs in 1967 to about 9,700 nesting pairs today in the lower 48 states. And we want to continue with our good news. This is KZFR 90.1 in Chico, and we want to continue with our good news about endangered species. Uh, There's a lot of bad news, but... Tonight, we're trying to focus on the good news. A Canadian environmental news agency, the Norwal, reports that scientists are devoted to saving Western Canada's only endangered tree, the whitebark pine, the first and only tree in Western Canada to be designated an endangered species and the only coniferous tree in the country with the designation. Facing the combined threats of habitat loss, climate change, and the mountain pine beetle in an invasive fungus called blister rust, these scientists recently hand-harvested hundreds of thousands of pine seeds to bring the tree back from the brink. A story by Andy Corbley in the Good News Network reported in October that the gray wolf has finally been removed from the federal endangered species years. It has been 45 years since one of the most charismatic and persecuted carnivores on Earth 
was listed under the Endangered Species Act. That's here in the lower 48. Now management of the gray wolf in the lower 48 will be passed to state and tribal governments in what has been one of the ESA's great successes. Indeed, numbers of gray wolves have soared over the past four decades from under a hundred refugees hiding out in northeastern Minnesota and Michigan's Upper Peninsula to around 6,000 individuals. Also reported by the Good News Network, the iconic Tasmanian devil has been returned to mainland Australia for the first time in 3,000 years. This first historic release is only step one in the mission to rewild Australia and bring balance to the bush according to the nonprofit Aussie Ark and its global partners Global Wildlife Conservation and Wild Ark uh, Aussie Ark explained they are committed to returning Australia's ecosystems to that of pre-European settlement free from introduced feral predators, an island oasis. To date, more than 390 devils have been born and raised at Aussie Ark in a way that fosters natural behavior in the animals, preparing them for release in the wild. This year, 26 Tasmanian devils were released into a 400-hectare wild sanctuary. In the next two years, Aussie Ark plans two additional releases of 20 devils each. If all goes as planned, the animals will breed and produce joeys, eventually resulting in a self-sustaining wild population. I've read that the Tasmanian devil isn't something you want to meet in person, but... Once again, this shows that bringing back, you can bring back a species if you prepare for it, find some space for them to live. The Good News Network also reported that the humpback whale population has bounced back from near extinction from just over 450 to about 25,000. Intense pressure from the whaling industry in the early 1900s saw the western South Atlantic population of humpbacks diminish to only 450 whales after approximately 25,000 of the mammals were hunted within 12 years. However, a study from the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, which was published in November, revealed that the species population has now rebounded. In Bloomberg Green's roundup of good news from 2020, we learned the efforts to curb poaching have helped Kenya's elephant population more than double over the past three decades, the Kenya Wildlife Service said in August. There were just 16,000 elephants in Kenya in 1989, but by 19, uh, sorry, 2018, that number has grown to more than 34,000. The Kenyan government has stiffened fines and jail terms over the past several years for anyone convicted of poaching or trafficking in wildlife trophies such as lion heads or stools made from elephants' feet. Bloomberg Green also reported that the Somali Senji, a mole-like mammal that hasn't been spotted for 50 years, has been discovered to be alive and well. Scientists had feared the creature might be extinct. The Senji is known as an elephant shrew because it sucks up ants with its trunk-like nose. While it wasn't seen in Somalia for decades, it was found thriving in neighboring Djibouti. 
In addition to good news about endangered species, Bloomberg Green's article by Leslie Kaufman in its September 21st issue reports on good news about energy. Kaufman reported a boost in renewables in recent years. Wind and solar doubled their share of the global power mix over the past five years. The renewable energy sources made up almost 10% of electricity and generation in most parts of the world in the first half of 2020, according to an analysis released in August by UK environmental group Ember. Grid operators relied more or less on (coughs) less expensive renewable energy sources as shutdowns to contain the novel coronavirus reduced demand for power. Also, Australia granted major project status to an ambitious Australian 222 billion, 16 U.S. billion, plan to export power from the world's largest solar farm in the country's northern territory to Singapore and Indonesia via a 3,700-kilometer undersea cable. The project could supply a fifth of Singapore's power needs, helping to reduce the city-state's reliance on natural gas imports. Fossil fuels are no longer considered green by China's central bank. The People's Bank of China will remove utilization of fossil fuel from the list of programs that can be funded by green bonds. The bank had drawn the ire of environmentalists for allowing its sustainable financing tools to fund projects that burn coal but use technology to reduce air pollution. Walmart has cut 230 million metric tons of greenhouse gases out of its supply chain in the past three years. The retailer is putting pressure on suppliers to keep the cuts coming by using more clean energy, shifting toward environmentally friendly product design and packaging, cutting emissions from agriculture, and protecting forests. For the first time ever... Solar and wind made up the majority of the world's new power generation. Solar additions last year totaled 119 gigawatts, representing 45% of all new capacity, according to research by Bloomberg NEF. Together, solar and wind accounted for more than two-thirds of the additions. That's up from less than a quarter of all new power plants in 2010. Apple Incorporated committed in July to become carbon neutral by 2030. Since the 1.6 trillion companies owning electricity needs are already served entirely by renewables, its new climate commitment is about its indirect emissions. The Cupertino, California-based Apple said it will ensure most of its suppliers deploy energy-efficient measures and switch to 100% renewables by the end of the decade. Unilever NV will spend 1 billion pounds, 1.2 billion dollars, to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in the production of its cleaning products by 2030. The company said in September it will replace the petrochemicals found in its detergents and household cleaners with renewable or recycled alternatives. Lyft Corporation said 100% of its trips will be in electric vehicles by the end of 2030. 
The pledge comes after California regulators released an analysis in December showing that ride-hailing services emit 50% more greenhouse gas per passenger mile than the average car. Lyft now faces the challenge of persuading its drivers to buy EVs. Those bits of good news all come from Bloomberg Green's September 21 issue. There's quite a big news, um, bit of good news from the Narwhal, a nonprofit Canadian environmental news organization. The founder and editor wrote in December 2020 about the good news stories that the online magazine had published in the previous year. And she chose to highlight 20 of their stories that are guaranteed to bring warmth to your self-isolated hearts. We won't summarize all 20, but you can go to the narwhal.ca 2020, the Narwhal Good News Solution Stories. Here are several we especially liked. Here's one that's relevant to farmers no matter where they live. For many years, farming has been lambasted as being a significant contributor to climate change. The industry has been accused of emitting large amounts of methane from cattle, heavy use of pesticides and fertilizers, stripping the land and trending trending toward increasing industrialization on ever larger farming operations. But in recent years, the role of farming in reducing emissions and stewarding the carbon sequestration potential of farmland and rich land across the Canadian prairies has been getting more and more attention. For example, unlike forests, grasslands store carbon underground in the deep root systems of the plants that grow there. By maintaining grasslands for grazing animals, ranches are actually important protectors of an important carbon store. And farmers of cultivated crops are adopting new techniques to retain the carbon storage potential of the land and store and soil. A study found that 20 to 60 percent of soil stored in carbon was lost when the land was dig up and digged up and turned to cropland. So farmers are coming up with alternative met, uh, methods. Zero till. Zero till doesn't mean an end to cropping, but it means an change in how it's done. Instead of tilling the soil every year, farmers can opt instead to leave the previous remnants of the previous crop in place. Rather than a freshly cultivated field of exposed dirt, the stubble of the last crop is left in the soil along with its roots and therefore increasing its carbon storage potential. One of the significant contributors to the climate impact of farming is fertilizer. According to Statistics Canada, some 70% of crop farms apply fertilizer. Estimates vary as to how much of it is lost as runoff, which ends up in the environment. In many cases, as with nitrogen, that would mean it ends up as greenhouse gas. It has been estimated that as much as 20% of nitrogen fertilizer is lost as runoff, which can end up being a significant factor in emissions. Fertilizer Canada advocates for what it calls the four R's, referring to fertilizer becoming applied, keeping in mind the right source, the right rate, the right time, the right place. This helps ensure it's used by the crop and not lost as runoff. 
Research in Canada has estimated that greenhouse gas emissions from nitrogen fertilizer can be reduced by 15 to 25 percent when 4R product protocols are followed. And finally, there's a food attitude additive that can reduce methane emissions from cows by between 17 and 70 percent depending on the exact diet methane is a potent greenhouse grass gas and it's like beano for cattle says one rancher narwhal reports more good news from canada the seal river is manitoba's only major waterway that hasn't been dammed and five indigenous communities have banded together to keep it that way by establishing a 50,000 square kilometer protected area that's about the size of Nova Scotia. Despite decades of protests, petitions and campaigns, only 2.7% of BC's British Columbia's original high productive Ye old growth forest remains, and more than three quarters of that small fraction is slated to be logged. First Nations leaders, conservationists, and scientists, and several politicians have put forward a new plan to finance old growth forest protection in the upcoming BC and federal budgets in the economic recovery plans. The Cree Nation is fighting to save broadback forest. This 1.3 million hectare forest in Quebec has never been logged or known the incursion of roads. It's also one of the most carbon-dense places on the planet, holding twice as much carbon as the Amazon per hectare. But community members fear the loggers are coming and have been asking the province to introduce new protections. Some of those new protections came in just this month, and the community is committed to fighting for even more. The Wet'suwet'en First Nation and others voluntarily closed their food fishery or limited the catch of declining sockeye salmon for two decades to help rebuild the populations. This year, those sacrifices paid off big time with salmon return 50% higher than what they saw in 2017. An indigenous indigenous corporation owned by the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation, Mikasu Cree First Nation, and Fort Chippewa Metis Association launched a 2.2 megawatt solar farm just north of Alberta oil sands. Electricity from the project, in conjunction with another solar farm and a battery system, which together make up the largest remote solar farm in Canada, will begin flowing to the community grid in January. In the face of climate change, grasslands have a major role, as we said, to play in sequestering carbon, storing as much as 180 tons of carbon per hectare, equivalent to the annual emissions of 39 cars. Some estimated estimate the uncultivated grasslands of Western Canada may store two to three billion tons of carbon. While government incentives exist for crop farmers, historically there has been little compensation compensation for those retaining grasslands. But that's changing with a bevy of projects looking at the potential for carbon markets to play a role in saving Canada's grasslands with the help of landowners. 
The number of renewable energy projects in Canada's remote communities has doubled since 2015, with the majority of those new projects coming on in the past two years. The projects are helping remote communities use less diesel fuel, which is costly and highly polluting. There is much more good Canadian news from Narwhal. If time permits, we'll read more at the end of the program, but we'll also post the link to that news item on our website. Kevin Roos's annual column, Good Tech Awards, honors the most humane and altruistic tech products of the year. Roos notes that plenty of large tech companies gave money to COVID relief efforts, anti-racism groups, and other philanthropic causes. Others donated personal protective equipment from their corporate stockpiles or built apps for contact tracing and other critical pandemic tasks. Here's some other good, new, notable good news and cool stuff in technology. In March, a group of tech workers assembled in Slack rooms and on Zoom called to figure out how they could use their tech expertise to help with the COVID crisis. The result was the U.S. Digital Response, which is now a network of over 6,000 coders, data scientists, and researchers who are helping local and state governments respond to COVID-19. So far, the group, which is led by Ray Ling Yung, a former Facebook and Stripe executive, and includes volunteers from most of Silicon Valley's biggest companies, has taken on a pro bono project in dozens of states. For example, it helped Pennsylvania's health department set up an online data dashboard to track the number of available hospital beds and ventilators. It helped Seattle health officials set up an online testing hub and rebuilt a Kansas Department of Labor website that was used to file for unemployment benefits. Because of climate change, we're probably in for many more wildflower fires like the ones that burned through the West Coast this summer, driving hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. But in the future, we might be better equipped to deal with them thanks to tools like those made by Perimeter, Technosilva, and Ignis. Three startups that are trying to modernize the firefighters' outdated arsenal. For example, Perimeter, a small startup in the Bay Area, makes collaborative mapping and data sharing software for emergency workers. Its founder, Bailey Farron, is a 24-year-old daughter of a retired fire captain and paramedic. After she and her family were forced to evacuate during the 2017 Tubbs fire, she saw the need for better communication systems than the two-way radios and paper maps that emergency workers often use. Perimeters app, which allows fire departments to share real-time evacuation routes and safety updates, is being tested in California cities, including Palo Alto and Petaluma, and the company plans to expand to other states soon. Technosilva, another California startup, makes predictive modeling software that allows fire departments to calculate where a fire is heading, how fast it's moving, and what weather patterns might affect its path. Its software is used in nine states and helped the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection predict the trajectory of wildfires this year, saving valuable time for those trying to extinguish the blazes. Ignis, created by a Nebraska company, Drone Amplified, is used for prescribed burns. 
Small fires purposely set in the path of a larger wildfire to steal its fuel. The system attaches to a drone, drops small incendiaries known as dragon eggs from a safe height at a much lower cost and personal risk than a helicopter. Ignis was used to battle fires in Colorado, California, and Oregon this year and recently struck a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service. From BBC's 10 Ways to Improve the Environment, we've selected two to pass on. The first one is about labeling products more clearly. Victoria Gill, a consumer, said, Something that drives me absolutely crazy is the lack of information that we all have when we're in the supermarket when it comes to things that we buy. If we labeled that food, it would be easier for all of us to do the right thing. The BBC notes that food comes from all over the world. Everything that we buy has an impact on the planet in terms of how it's produced, where it's grown, and what's been used to grow it. If we labeled that food, if there were rules that meant that the food and those products had to be labeled to say how much carbon had been produced as they were manufactured, grown, made, and transported, we could make better informed decisions and it would be easier for us to do the right thing. And here's a story where a young person read the label carefully. Olivia Chapin is a Girl Scout in Tennessee. She earned a badge for selling more than 600 boxes of cookies. She had spotted palm oil as an ingredient on the back of one of her packages and was at first relieved to see a green tree logo next to the words Certified Sustainable. She assumed that meant her thin mints and tagalongs weren't harming rainforests. And she assumed they weren't harming orangutans, or those harvesting the orange-red palm fruit. But later, this whip-smart 11-year-old saw the word MIXED in all caps on the label, turned to the Internet, quickly learning that it meant exactly what she feared. Sustainable palm oil had been blended with oil from unsustainable sources. To her, that meant the cookies she was peddling were tainted. Now, 14 years old, Olivia has fired letters off to the head of the Girl Scouts of the USA demanding answers about how the palm oil is sourced for the organization's cookies. She started an online petition to get it removed, and she and some other members of Troop 543 have stopped selling them. The Girl Scouts did not respond to repeated respects, requests for comment before Associated Press published its finding Tuesday. But after widespread criticism on social media, the organization sent out a tweet the next day calling on its bakers and the RSPO to take action. Olivia's story is one reason we included this next BB suggestion for how to improve the environment. Keep girls in education globally. If every girl on this planet was able to go to school to the end of secondary school, it would have a massive difference on the amount of carbon that's produced around the planet. That's because over time, population would drop a bit. We'd probably have about 1.5 billion fewer people by the middle of this century, and that would equate to about two years worth of global emissions. Simply from doing the morally, ethically, right thing it would have a massive impact on the world education is another place where we may have more good news where we do have good news as our old concepts of what education can and should be have been upended by covid 
In an article by Elizabeth Wadding published in December 2020, we learn about the now school concept. Inspired by the green school movement, Juliette Schwauers, a sustainable entrepreneur, is setting up the now school in Utrecht, Netherlands. It's a school which uses permaculture for its school grounds design. At Now School, children have full ownership of their learning journey and all the freedom to be curious. Their natural development will be guided by teachers who believe in them and guide them to reach their full potential. At the heart of the design are seven key buildings. Buildings. Central event space, a large round hall for talks, music, concerts, dances, and other events. A library and reading room, book line space, quiet reading room area. A large kitchen, dining hall, and restaurant. It includes a shop for selling produce grown on-site and an attached greenhouse to the south. There's a maker's space craft zone workshop, a space dedicated to craftsmanship and upcycling equipped for hands-on projects. There's reception and office co-working spaces, the reception for the school and office with flexible office space to allow community co-working. Composting toilet block and shed storage area includes gray water harvesting and reed beds. There's a bike shed. There's a biofuel plant to produce fuel for a bus for school excursions. And there are also food production gardens, wildlife and wild spaces, and a forest garden plus a livestock area where chickens and, in the future, other livestock can be kept. This vision of school breaks with an ancient, outdated notions of what learning and education can and should be. Not the accumulation of rote facts and knowledge, but the exploration of ideas and experiences that allow kids to participate in the world. Their knowledge growing from their direct engagement, as well as reading, writing, viewing, and listening. Listening to sources they choose because they care. That's the school we'd like to be in, and we have to acknowledge that there are Many of the kinds of spaces described here are already extant in Chico land. Back in July, Dutch automotive company Lightyear introduced the world's first long-range solar car, the four-passenger all-electric vehicle called Lightyear One. The prototype had already sold 100 orders to be filled in 2021 after it was presented to the select audience of investors, customers, partners, and press in the Netherlands over the summer. The Lightyear team of international engineers, some coming from Ferrari and Tesla, say they now believe it to be a historic turning point in the flight against global CO2 emissions. Unfortunately, this news release didn't say how far it goes, but we're guessing it goes a lot farther than the 200 limit common to U.S. electric vehicles. But it doesn't matter. It's solar power, and that's all we need. Uh, Well, that's a good start. In April, the National Pollinator Garden Network surpassed their goal of registered pollinator gardens with just over 1 million 40,000 gardens registered with their Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. The organization launched the Ambition Initiative ambitious initiative in 2015 as a means of saving pollinators which are responsible for about one in three bites of food that we eat every day 
Though most of the registered pollinator gardens are concentrated in the United States, the project also recruited members in Canada, Mexico, and Europe. The registered spaces, most of which are comprised of private yards and public gardens, all add up to a network of approximately 5 million acres of enhanced or new pollinator habitation. French startup company Caribos is poised to solve many of the world's recycling conundrums with a new process that uses enzymes to break down the most problematic pet plastics, like contaminated black food trays. Turns them into a form so pure that it can be used to make clear water bottles. Of course, we probably shouldn't be using clear water bottles Yeah, it's recycled, man. But... They look and act like those made from petroleum. The Green Chemistry Company announced in October that it had wrapped up funding for the construction of a new recycling plant that will use enzymes to biorecycle all at once and in a few hours. Multicolored plastic like food trays, polyester shirts for which the recycling rate is close to zero. The first-of-its-kind battery, which was switched on at the University of Sunshine Coast in September, has been designed to store energy generated by 6,000 solar panels that have been installed across campus rooftops. And it has already slashed their overall electrical usage by 40%. Over the course of the next 25 years, the thermal energy tank is expected to save $100 million dollars in air conditioning costs and dramatically reduce the school's greenhouse gas emissions. Researchers have created a first-of-its-kind roadmap for saving Earth from climate change years before 2050. The study, which was published back in April, was the first of its kind to outline a cost-effective international strategy to keep the planet's carbon emissions at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Not only that, it was the first study of its kind to suggest a global strategy that does not involve carbon capture technology. The global energy system based on 100% renewable energy, power, heat, transport, and desalination sectors was conducted by the La Parenta University of Technology and the Energy Watch Group from Germany. A Cameroon man used wasted plastic bottles to build canoes for fishermen in need, bringing first recycling system to the nation. An innovative young man from Cameroon has been cleaning up pollution in his city, by turning plastic bottles into boats. Ismael Esom Obeni was first inspired to build his eco-boats as a student back in 2011. After his boats proved successful, he invested all of his money into launching the non-profit Nadiba in Nature, a charity dedicated to collecting plastic waste from around the region and turning it into boats for ecotourism and fishermen in need. Thanks to the success of the recycling venture, the Cameroonian organization was this year able to install the nation's first ever eco-bin for collecting, sorting, and recycling waste materials. So we know that 2020 was the worst world world worst year in recent memory we assume 2021 will be better but clearly these stories that we've recited to you tonight show that even in 2020 a lot of good people were doing a lot of good things as we say about saving the earth the potential is there a lot of the technology is there 
It's a question of whether we have the will to put it into action. You've been listening to Ecotopia on KZFR 90.1 Chico, exploring ecosystems, environmental, social, and technological.